Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh. If you're listening to the Addiction Unlimited show, I'm guessing you're a fan of sobriety and recovery, right? If you've struggled to make sense of it all because you're high-functioning, have a great job, a family, and a house in the right zip code, but you know deep down that you need to make a change and make it last, this is the perfect episode to get serious insight on how alcohol will take whoever it wants. It doesn't care if you have money or come from a prominent family. It doesn't care how cool your handbag or car is. It just doesn't discriminate. Enter Elizabeth Chance. She's the fabulous host of the Busy Living Sober podcast and massive champion in the recovery community. I've recently gotten to know Elizabeth better, and it has been a blast. She is a high-energy mom and wife who came from a country club family and followed the family legacy right into an alcohol-fueled lifestyle. She's spending time at distinguished galas and exclusive fundraisers with government officials, and it took the simple words of a complete stranger to get her attention and compel her to make a change. We talk about the process of understanding you have a problem despite all the privilege and prestige, how she got sober, and how much the world of recovery has changed over the course of the years. She has absolutely mastered her recovery lifestyle, and she's sharing all of her challenges, tragedies, and the many sweet sober victories all with you. So listen in, my friend, because the opportunities to learn something new are endless. Here's Elizabeth Chance. Elizabeth Chance with us today on Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you and see you again. How are you? I'm fabulous. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, absolutely. I was super excited to get to talk to you again. I am too. This is awesome. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do? Okay. Hi again. I'm Elizabeth Chance. My nickname's Busy. I have a podcast called Busy Living Sober. I've been sober since August 14, 2006. I'm in in Florida. We call them one chip wonders. I got one white chip and that was it. Thank you, God, as of today at least. And um, my journey started, um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, right down the road from you. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis, home of Anheuser-Busch. I love to tell everybody. Well, it used to be home of Anheuser-Busch. 
yeah. and the St. Louis Cardinals. They were so fun growing up watching baseball. But I started drinking at 13 and got sober at 37. And um, I was married and I got divorced. I've been remarried. I have three kids that are all, now I'm an empty nester. So that's been something to go like, I'm 55. So I've gone through menopause. Um, I'm a life coach. I'm a recovery coach. I'm a health and wellness coach. I started a podcast over seven years ago called Busy Living Sober that you can find all over the place. And um, my mission is to help people feel not alone. I love that. Now you said white chip, so you have to tell everybody what that means because a lot of people will not know what that means. So when in Florida, especially when you go to your first meeting and they say in a 12-step meeting that you go to, it can either be in a clubhouse or in a church basement, wherever you may go. And they say, is anybody here for the first time? And somebody might raise their hand and say, yes, I'm here for my first time. And they hand out white poker chips. And so you walk up and you said, this is my first meeting. And they hand you a white chip that says here, welcome to your first meeting. And so I went and I got that first chip, August 14, 2006. And I haven't looked back. Okay. Now what is the significance? Because you also said only one white chip. So you have to explain the significance of only having one. (laughs) Because um, I, under any and all circumstances for the past 17 plus years, I haven't picked up a drink no matter what. I, I came into, I walked into that room and I haven't looked back and I've never gone back and gotten, I, by the grace of God, I haven't had to go back and I haven't relapsed. I haven't had any slips. I haven't had any of those things. God willing again, please, God, please. Um, (laughs) I chase my recovery still to this day. Like I chased my alcohol. It's, um, the biggest gift that I've given to myself and my kids and my community around me is being able to live this sober lifestyle. That's amazing. Yeah. So in a lot of parts of the world, it's called a 24 hour coin or 24 hour chip. And so if you relapse and you go back to a meeting and they'll ask, is this anybody's first meeting since their last drink? And if it's your first meeting since your last drink, you'll get another 24 hour chip. So some people have a lot of 24 hour chips. Some people do not. And It is, um, I think it's an honor to have all the chips, (laughs) all the coins, because it doesn't matter how many it might take, you know, or how many times it's like, it just takes whatever it takes. And I didn't, I'm like you, I didn't, I haven't relapsed, right? I just turned 18. We have the same sober year. I'm January, you're August. But I know that it was really a struggle for me to get there, right? It was, I had all my struggles before I got to the rooms of 12 steps instead of after I got to the rooms. So that's why I managed to only have one 24 hour chip so far. Please God. (laughs) Please God. Congratulations on 18. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that it's was, um, I can be totally, you know, uh, what is an honest thing I can tell you is that when I was first, you know, I first went into the rooms and I made a bestie, right? This person was like my best friend in the rooms. And it was like, we had the same, we were really close in our sobriety dates. And when she unfortunately picked up and she said to me, she's like, well, do you want to smoke some weed with me? And I was like, well, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm sober. She's like, well, it's Alcoholics Anonymous, not Marijuana Anonymous or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, because I held on to, I, like, I cherished this. Yes, I respect yes, it so much that for me, um, 
for me, when I was walking through it and to watch this, when she did relapse, I was like, oh my gosh, I was so scared to be like, I was going to catch it. Like it was chicken pox or Mm -hmm. something like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. So for me, again, I have, um, I'm going to go back and I, I had three children when I got sober, I had been divorced. I was a single mom. I had three kids between the ages of, I had one that was 10, one that was eight and one that was six. So I also had some major skin in the game and responsibility in that I had to show up for these people no matter what. It wasn't like they weren't, they were going to clothe themselves. They were going to eat themselves. They were going to go drive themselves places. It was like, I had to be a mom. And so I, and again, now they're adults. And so I still cherish it because I can't imagine them calling me and me going, oh, what's Mm -hmm. up? (laughs) Yeah. And I love that you said that you used the word respect, right? I was the same way with my recovery. Like I really respected my sobriety and I have always understood that it's fragile on some level, right? I don't think that I'm not susceptible to relapse. I know that I could relapse just like anybody else does, which is what keeps me diligent in working on myself and not ever, you know, kind of getting complacent or lazy or whatever people get. I don't really know. Uh, It just keeps me really on my game. I agree with you hundred percent. It's like, we have to, we, if we don't, if we don't take care of what we love we're going to lose it. Yeah. Right. No matter what that is, you know what I mean? Your faith, your spirituality, your exercise, your diet, all that. We always have to stay diligent with all of it yeah. or we're going to lose it. Yes, for sure. So tell me a little bit about your journey. Like how old were you? Because you said you started drinking young. You just said 13, right? So how old were you when you realized that you had a problem, like on a level that it was going to require help? So I'll tell you this. I, so I, I want to preface this with both my grandmothers were alcoholics. Okay. I mean, they were functioning. I lived in, you know, I didn't, I came from some place where people would be like, there's no alcoholics there. It's a beautiful neighborhood. You live in a purity house with like all different fancy cars and you go to a fancy country club and all those things, which, which I did. Um, but there was alcoholism in our family and my, my, I, my mother's mother, you know, ran an Uber super company that's still around to this day that she, you know, went every Every night she'd have drinks and get drunk and be carried in. So I knew what alcoholism was from a very young age because my parents would talk about their mothers in a way like, they're alcoholics. Can you believe it? Alcoholics. So it was like, again, it's like, it's like you have leprosy or something. Like they had this, it was, had a horrible connotation. So it was the last thing I wanted to be. Mm. But I remember again, growing up and I grew, I was born in 1968. So I grew up in the, you know, seventies and eighties where everybody was having cocktail parties. You always, it was the big cocktail party thing. And my mom, I always remember just looking at her and when they had these parties, she had a beautiful dress on and a beautiful glass, you know, beautiful glass. And she was happy. And my dad was all dressed up and they always, looks they smell good they look good every it was like I can't wait to be a grown-up and do that so at 13 you know when people are like oh let's have a drink and I had a drink and it was like wow this is awesome like I didn't have I also have to talk about you know those thoughts were always going through my head that I just didn't want to have you know lack you know self not self-loving not you know I didn't know how to take care of myself I didn't know what to do with all these huge feelings especially as 13, you know, you're becoming a woman, all these crazy things are happening. 
and people didn't talk like they do today. Like your mom wasn't sitting down going to you going, this is what it feels like to have a period. It was like, no, here's a book called period. Good luck. God bless. I'll get back to you. (laughs) You know, I remember saying to my mom, what was menopause? Like, what do you mean? She was like, what do you mean menopause? There was no menopause. I was like, really? Okay. One of these hot flashes I'm having. But not to digress, which I just did. But I, um, so I, at 18, I got a GUI though. At 18, mm-hmm. I had, a, I, I was, I had left my boyfriend. I had broken up with my boyfriend and he showed up at a party with a new girlfriend. And I'm like shocked, <laughs> you know, how could he do that? And, um, I got in my car and I drove from St. Louis over to Illinois, which is very easy where St. Louis is. And, um, I got a GUI and my dad took me into treatment and I, and, my mom took me out. My parents had had a tumultuous divorce. I'm a major, major, amazing manipulator at that point in my life. And so I was like, mom, come get me. Dad, put me in rehab. So literally it lasted like not even five, not even an hour. Like my mom called me. She's like, go to the bathroom, climb out the window and I'll meet you on the other side. And that was it. So I knew that I might have a problem because I did make an hour stint at a rehab, but, um, it wasn't until I was 37, I got, I was married. I had three kids. My husband, um, my first husband, the father of my kids, you know, he drank like I did. So it was the perfect person to get married when I graduated from college. And my life was pretty much a checklist. Like you go to high school, check. Mm-hmm. You go to college, check. You get married, check. You buy a house in a nice neighborhood, check. You join the right country clubs, check. All that stuff I was doing, right? So I'm he fit the mold. So I'm like, okay, any parties like me? So he wasn't scared of me and my mm-hmm. insanity. So let's go play house. And so we did that. And um his drinking, you know, I, I could focus on his drinking because I had three babies really close together. One in 96, one in 97, one in 99. And so I was like, oh, you are the one that has a drinking problem. Look at you. You're drinking too much. Because every time I got pregnant, I stopped drinking. It was, I don't know what, like God blessed me with this or something. Because it was like, I'm like, I'm just, it's all about what I'm Mm -hmm. carrying. It's not about me. It's about the baby. So every time I got pregnant, it was like I had a cigarette in my hand, put the cigarette out. I just had like probably blacked out the night before. And I'm like, okay, now it's all about the baby. So I did that. And um, so then I get divorced and I felt like when I got divorced, it's like I threw a grenade in the living room, shrap metal hit everyone because everybody was sad. And all my friends are like, God, you look so great. How are you doing? I'm like, fabulous. Get me another dirty martini. Get me another drink. Get me another this. It was all about that. It was all about having, like, get, not having feelings, mm-hmm. not having feelings. So fast forward. Um, I had been drinking a lot for those two years. I ended up renting a house that um, I and I was I was able to pay for two years of rent up front because I just sold a house that I was my marital marital home. I paid two years of rent, and I went and I partied my ass off, and I had three little kids. So my kids would go to their dads, and that was like my heart ripped out of my body every time they left to go to their dads. It was like, oh my God, it just killed me. So I decided when that would happen, I'd go and I'd party. Like I was back in college, like doing crazy things. And sometimes I'd get into extras, not only alcohol, but get into some drugs and do that. And 
it was horrible, horrible time. It was the darkest time in my life, I think back to. And um, it ended up that my grandmother that I was talking about earlier, the Irish Catholic one, when she died, I was asked to give the eulogy. And the night before I fell in my kitchen and like sprained my ankle and I had to get in front of the church in front of all these people. And I had drank so much the night before. If you had brought a match to me, I think it would have imploded. And I had been going big I'd been going big that, like that summer. I was like, oh my God, all this crazy, like many feelings. I actually bought a house myself and it was in a town that I could walk to all the bars where I raised my kids and it was perfect. I was like, oh my God, I bought my house in June. My grandmother died in July. My sister got married and my sister had been sober at the time. Mm. And the guy she was marrying was sober. She met him in the rooms. And so they had this wedding. And of course, half the guests were sober. Mm-hmm. Well, I had always made fun of my siblings because they got sober when they were really young. Unfortunately, they're not sober today. And that's not my business, but that's just where they are. But um, at this point, they were sober. And they would come to my parties. And they'd be sitting in the corner. And they'd be the ones that look like punk rockers. And again, this is in the ninth, This is in like 2000. 2006. And they're smoking and I'm like, oh, and they're talking about this big book. They're like, we were big book beaters. And I'm like, okay, you guys are losers. What are you talking about? You don't drink. What the hell's wrong with you people? So I knew what AA was. And so I ended up, so my sister gets married. And the next day after my sister's wedding, my mother had had a, like a morning brunch for all these people that were guests from out of town. And I, of course, had a glass, maybe two, one in each hand, a pretty glass with like a mimosa and probably Bloody Mary. And of course, a good looking guy, because for me, it has to come in a guy, good looking guy comes up to me and he's like, you know, you have a drinking problem. Like what? He's like, I think you have a drinking problem. And if you ever need help, let me know. I'm like, oh my God. And that night or late afternoon, I was living in Philadelphia and I was driving to the beach, which is a two hour drive and I'm by myself. And in my head, I'm, I don't know if you can, I bet you can relate to this, but you know, your head goes, am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? And your head goes back and forth, back and forth. It's like that, that old Christmas movie that has that heat miser and one's a bad guy and one's a good guy. Like, and I had the bad guy and the good guy up here going, are you an alcoholic? Are you not an alcoholic? And so I got to the beach and somebody said, do you want a drink? And I said, no, I'm not going to have a drink. And I woke up the next day and I said, see, I'm not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Because my idea of an alcoholic was somebody that had to be, you know, a street person or what, like living underneath the freeway or something like that. It wasn't like somebody who had a car in your driveway and can still pay your bills. It was like you had to be rock bottom. But in the end, I realized that this was my rock bottom. But I, the next day, somebody said, do you want to drink? And it was four o'clock, which of course it was five o'clock somewhere in the world. And I picked up a drink. And I, I, you know, was all by myself, literally sitting at the end of the dock of the bay with my feet hanging over the dock with a pack of cigarettes, a cell phone that was not like it is today mm-hmm. by any stretch of imagination. <laughs> it was, thank God, thank God there were no cameras, there were no photographs, there was no social media, none of that stuff. And um, I woke up the next day and I went on a run on the beach and it was August in New Jersey, very hot. And people who know me know I do not run unless somebody's chasing me, which never <laughs> happens anymore. Um, so I went to, and I went running on the beach and I fell to my knees and I said, God, please help me. I you cannot drink like this. And I, I, please help me. God, I don't want to drink this like this anymore. I'm an, I, I'm an alcoholic. Help me stop. And I went back and my brother-in-law who had just married my sister, um, who had at that point, I think 
maybe even he had 20 years at that point. I mean, mm. he got sober really young. And um, he said, if you really, I said, I'm going to quit drinking. And they're all like, what? You're like the last man that's going to, like, I was the party queen. I was on stage with the band. I was doing all that stuff. I was like a total professional partier. And when I said I'm done, they were like, oh my God, really? And I'm like, really? And he said, if you're t telling the truth, you're going to call this woman and she'll meet you at a meeting. Now today, 17 years and a half, almost 18 years later, you know, there's so many other outlets, yeah. you know, when we were getting sober, I mean, it was like, there was no like sober curious. Yeah. And, oh, do you want to go have a sober cocktail? It was like, oh, duels, who wants to drink that shit? Not me. You know, sorry for Odules lovers out there that are listening, by the way, but it was not like there were all these options yeah. that there are today. And being sober was not like anything anybody was talking about at, in the way that they are today, like celebrating these people, which is amazing. And I love it. Mm -hmm. But when we were getting sober, it was like kind of, we, we were kind of still looked at as kind of weirdos, like what the hell's wrong with you? And it was a boys club back then. Oh, really big boys club. Yeah. 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 Okay, so this person that came up to you and said you have a drinking problem, um, the good-looking guy, was this somebody you knew or was this like a stranger? Stranger. Stranger danger. Mm. Stranger. Never seen him again. But it was – I think that I was ready to hear it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like we go through life and sometimes we can hear things and we're like, oh, I got that. I heard it. I took it in. I absorbed it. Sometimes we people will say stuff to us and it just floats off of us like what, whatever. I don't even remember what that person said. But this guy saying this to me was like a catalyst in my life. It literally made me pivot mm -hmm. and go, wait a minute. It's time to look at this. It's time to change mm -hmm. this. I remember the early thoughts – am I an alcoholic? And I wasn't anywhere near out of control like I got, right? <laughs> like when I had those first thoughts, like, I wonder if, like, is this what's going on with me? Um, for me though, I, I definitely knew I was, you know, the, the questioning piece was very short lived. And then as my drinking increased, like I understood that I did not do it the way other people did. And I understood that I was more attached to it than other people were. It was more important to me, you know? And I relate so much to what you were saying about being the party girl, right? Like I was the bartender at all the parties on my nights off, worked in the hottest clubs in Hollywood. Like, yes, yeah, like that was everything. And that was my whole lifestyle and my whole identity. Like I can so relate to that. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I try. My drinking was but a symptom they talk about mm -hmm. because I was really ser seriously trying to have a normal. And I want to do quote and air quotes for those that are just listening and not watching this. You know, I wanted to have this persona that I had it all together. Like I had the perfect husband, I had the perfect kids because my life was all about this external show that I had. Right, so I had the perfect cars, I had the perfect zip code, I had the perfect car. My kids went to the best schools, and you know. I hung out with the fans, you know, whatever. And that was what really made me, I was like, I don't want to be this because now it's going to make me different. How am mm -hmm. I going to show up 
to these parties that I, I mean, I was a cocktail party going to benefits, you know, big time benefits, wearing fancy dresses with some of the best people, whatever, uh, people who started industries in America. And I'm showing up and, you know, all I wanted to do, like I'd show up and be on the front page. I mean, my local congressperson used to send pictures of me from the, you know, the newspaper articles that I was photographed in. And it was just like, oh my gosh, it was, I was a shell of a person. Mm -hmm. I was just showing up and doing all these things. And I didn't know who I was, even though I was 37 years old. I had a husband. I had three kids. I was a member of my community. I belonged to a church. I did all these things that you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I had a problem with alcohol. Yeah. It's always fascinating to me, like the, the exposures that we have that, that kind of create our outlook on being an alcoholic, you know, like you were talking about your grandmothers and also the connotation you had, like watching your parents where this was a really beautiful, sophisticated kind of thing that you aspired to be, right? I mean, obviously having no idea that it was going to hijack you, but <laughs> for me living in LA in my 20s, like I was so accustomed to sober people because it's so big there. You know, so even though I didn't get sober until I moved to Kansas City, it it just didn't seem weird to me because I had been so exposed to sobriety and AA. Like I feel like it's like half and half. Half the people aren't sober and half the people are. Like everybody always talks about AA. AA is everywhere you go in a conversation. So I think it just didn't feel weird to me. It almost felt more like the natural progression. You know, like this part of my life, I was a drinker. And then the next part of my life, I'm going to have to be a sober person, you know? Yeah. And I went to school in Washington, DC. So my college was in the heart of, I mean, again, this is, a, this is not what it's like today at mm-hmm. all. Like we could drive into the, we drove into the Capitol. We drove, like you could drive your car in there and they'd be like, girls, turn around, yeah. go back and do what you were doing. And you know, it was not, people did not, it was not, it was not like people were celebrating the fact mm. that you, people were sober. That was not what people were talking about a cocktail. Right. No one was talking right. about that. Like you had, like, if you couldn't, and that's where it's kind of hard in my demo, like, especially in this demographic of people that are like, you grow up in this, like you're living in the suburbs, you're living in an affluent neighborhood. You're, you're supposed to go to the country. Yeah. Club. You're supposed to have drinks. You're supposed to be in this wine culture that moms have yeah. today. And it was so, so for me, it was like, I literally had to take myself out of my community. I didn't physically leave Mm -hmm. and that I moved to a different place, even though somebody thought I did. Somebody was like, did you move to Colorado? I'm like, no, I've just been in church basement. Sorry. (laughs) But it was not like people were selling, like it was not like something to be rejoiced. And again, now we'll fast forward 17 years. And I think people are definitely more aware Mm. and more able to talk about it. I mean, yes, there's still people that have put this shame and this stigma to it, unfortunately, you know, but when I first started doing my talks, I used to do talks in my town and nobody really liked to come because it's like inviting, you know, the grim reaper Mm -hmm. to the old age home. Like who wants to hear the sober girl when everybody parties, but I really tried to inundate my community and say, you know what, there is, there is a solution 
because so many family, I'm not, we're not special. Mm -hmm. Everybody has this. It doesn't matter where you grew up, what zip code it is, what, what finances look like anything. That's the one thing about alcoholism. It doesn't discriminate. So having it be an option, like I, with when the way I raised my children was like, you guys have to realize that your DNA because my ex-husband eventually did get sober when I when I had seven years. He just had 10. So, but for them, it was like always like you guys realize this. You could be have this. And if you do, there is a solution. When I was growing up, there was no solution. Mm-hmm. Like it was I was different in that I went and changed the whole narrative and became a person that lives alcohol free. Mm -hmm. What has been one of your most difficult moments in sobriety and how did you get through it without drinking? Oh my gosh. I had one of my, my first boyfriend was killed, you know, in a drunk driving accident. That was really tough, very hard, but I dealt with the feelings. My best friend was murdered a year later in Honduras um, that was hard. My mom's passed away. Um, my son just recently, my son stopped talking to me. He got, he met a woman. He excommunicated me from his life. He actually just got married on New Year's Eve and I wasn't invited to his wedding and entire year of not really sleeping well, Mm -hmm. but having that resource of being able to talk to somebody, realizing I have a spiritual life that is so important to me. The prayer meditation that I learned, there were tools that I learned from the beginning of getting sober. Again, when I got sober, um, I really listened to my sponsor, mm-hmm. like no, and, and I call her my fellow traveler, whatever you want to call her th- these days. There's so many different names you can call a sponsor, but she was someone that I really respected and listened to and took her advice. Like it was serious. It was like, okay, wait a minute, you're going to have to do this. And for the first time in my life, I listened to mm-hmm. someone because I wanted this. I wanted this. And she was like, don't get into a relationship for a year. So I didn't get into a relationship for a year. I figured out like writing a gratitude list. Like it was imperative that I wrote a gratitude list. It was imperative that I called her and I talked about my feelings, something that were, at least I was raised. You don't talk about your feelings. You go and you hide and you, mm-hmm. you drink them away. You don't, it's not okay. And, you know, it was always like, pick up, pick up your feet, stop crying and stop acting like a girl and go mark. And I'd be like, oh my gosh. So it gave me this opportunity to be able to be honest with someone and tell them how I was really feeling. And again, that prayer and meditation, you know, I'd always prayed because I was raised, you know, with religion and it's always been important to me that my relationship with God, but that meditation piece, it was like, I'm never going to learn how to meditate. I took a class at the university of Pennsylvania to learn how to meditate, Mm -hmm. which, you know, all of my, all of my thoughts on meditation, which were totally wrong, which were like, Oh, you're going to not have any thoughts. We're like, no, you're going to always have thoughts. Until your day. <laughs> yes. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So, but that gave me this opportunity that I learned that tool. So it's like, I have to do it every day. Like I have to breathe every day. Like I cannot get out of bed without praying and meditating. It's like, doesn't happen. So those tools have helped me realize like, okay, these are feelings. They suck. I'm not going to lie. 
They're horrible. And sometimes I'll like pick up a cigarette instead of picking up a drink, right? I will do those things that are not great, but it's like better than drinking for me. And I will do that and then I'll stop it again. And then, but for that time being, I will use coping skills that will help for me. I'm a big walker. I, I play golf. I, you know, I have, a, I'm remarried. My husband's also sober, which makes it really nice. Cause I have, you know, a wingman that we speak the same language and I still have a sponsor and talk to her and, I help other women all the time. So that's also, that also helps, you know, and I have a real big relationship with God, my higher power that really is, I realize it's just today. Mm -hmm. It's just today. Yeah. When did you know that you wanted recovery to be your work? How did that come about? It's so crazy. Oh, what a great question. Um, I have always been an entrepreneur. So I graduated from college. I wanted to get into television. Um, I worked at, a, at the CBS affiliate in Philadelphia when I first got out of college. And then I went on to work for QVC and I was a guest host on QVC for a while. And then I was figuring out what I was going to do. And I started a concierge business. So I ran errands for high net worth people. And a friend of mine from St. Louis reached out to me and he's like, you should become a recovery coach. And I'm like, what's that? And so then I became a recovery. This is 13 years ago. This is before you can go and do all the stuff you can do today. But, um, I, so I got certified as a recovery coach and I had an office in my town in Philadelphia. And that's where I started doing this. And I did that for a while. And then I met my husband. He's like, you don't have to do that anymore. I'm like, okay, good. So I, I stopped actually doing that. And now I, do, now I'm starting to coach again, mm -hmm. but I spent a lot of time. I was, I've been able to help a lot of women in this sponsor sponsorship role, which has been amazing. And the tools I've learned along the way, I'm, I'm a yoga instructor now as well. And I'm a health and wellness coach. So all these tools I use to integrate and help the women in my life, which has been absolutely amazing. It's just, it's amazing. I feel really blessed over that. Yeah. I definitely agree with you there. Okay. Then where did the podcast come into play? So this is the, another, so everything's a God wink in my life. I have to tell you, like, it's always somebody reaching out to me going, do this, do that. Think about this, think about that. So I was working, um, I was at that point I had a business. I was seeing patients, uh, clients, and I was a recovery coach. I, my, my business was called sober, um, sober, not ashamed. I patented that. And my patent attorney said, why don't you come to Philadelphia? I'm having a round table and I show up. And it's in downtown Philadelphia in this high rise. And I show up and I'm like, I'm just a recovery coach. And there's head of like major accounting firms, major law firms, the head of Susan B. Corman, the breast cancer was there. And um, it ends up that the woman that was giving the talk there owned a marketing firm called zero to five and her name's Michelle Pacheas. And she said afterwards, I went up and I started talking to her and I'm like, so what do you do? This is what I do. And she's like, I love your energy. Why don't you come in? I want to talk to you and what you're doing. And so I went in and I met with her and I had been giving talks in my town again, I'd been at like churches and I went and talked to like the insurance brokers of my area and that sort of thing, how alcohol ism can affect your, the workplace and that sort of thing. And she said, why don't you start a podcast? Again, this is seven years ago. Nobody's really talking about podcasts. Yeah. Like and um, I'm like, what's a podcast? She's like, well, you're going to go and do this. So I started my podcast and I literally had no idea until about six months, 
has it been six, probably five months ago, where I was in the ratings, where I was in everything. I just hired my first assistant. I did this just to help other people that were out there trying to get sober. Like, how do you do it? And I didn't want anybody to feel like they were alone. Like, how are you doing that? You know, mm-hmm. that's what I did. So I started it and now I go on twice a week. I have a guest on Mondays and on Wednesdays I'm solo by myself and it's been an amazing ride. It's I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, it was hard to know up until I think recently. It was hard to know in podcast world like kind of where you ranked. You know, it was it's not easy information to get, you know, you kind of have to seek it out. You don't know how accurate it is. Like it's way better now, but like four years ago, five years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't such a simple process, you know, and it, it's changed so much now. Like everybody's starting a podcast, you know, which is very different also than it was four or five years ago, but they still say that most people don't make it past like 10 episodes because, because there's so much work. Great question. Again, sorry, my son was calling in and he keeps calling. So I just said, I'm on a podcast. Stop, please. So anyway, um, so again, seven years ago, I get my computer. I had a little Mac and I had a Squarespace account and I went on to Squarespace and you could link that right to Apple iTunes. Okay. So that's what I did. So I'd go on and I'd do it every week. And it was kind of my thing. And my son who just was calling me, my youngest one who just graduated from Georgia Tech, he's 24. He was like, mom, don't ever give up. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep going. So I kept going and it was like, and people would say, well, how many people listen to it? And I'd be like, I don't know. Right. Why do you care? Like, I'm not, right. it's not, I, I didn't do it to make money. It was not here to be, it was kind of like a public servant. I don't know if you could say that. I love to talk. I've always wanted to, I wanted to be the next Barbara Walters. God bless her soul. That was always my dream was to have my own show. And I got to do it. And what other people like the rankings, if I just helped one person, that's all I say. Every time I get, before I get on, I pray to God to please let me help one person. If that's it, if one person can relate to my story and get sober, that was all what it was about. So it was really funny. Again, Godwink, my neighbor, a good friend of mine, who's also an artist, we were going to look for art studio space that we could go paint in because we have little houses and we're like, where can we paint? And so we go over to this place and look at it. And there's a woman who does podcasting. And I went over and I was like, I just, Janine Stella is her name. I went over and I said, Janine, will you look at my podcast? Like, I don't even know. Like, am I ranked somewhere? She's like, oh, you're in the top 3% of podcasters globally. I'm like, really? I had no, I, and, and again, what does that mean? It's just bragging rights, right? It's it's like, but I love, you know, Joe Rogan had said, I listen, I, I listen to Joe Rogan a lot. My kids love Joe Rogan. And, um, you know, years ago, he would say, you know, I love that so many people are getting in this space. It's so amazing. And Patrick Bet David, I don't know if you ever listened to him. Patrick Bet David just came out and he was, um, he said, you know, going forward, this will probably be 2024 will probably be the last time that we have news the way it is right now on television that, that, that are going to dictate what's going on in elections. What's going to happen moving forward is going to be this podcast platform because it's so much more intimate. It's so much more truthful. There isn't advertisers that you need to say, oh, we have to do it this way or we're not going to have our advertisers. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, it's more authentic. It's more transparent. It's more real. And 
that's what I'm about. I'm like, I am all about telling my truth the way it is. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's okay. But that's me. And you can find somebody else. And I say the more, the merrier, because we're humans as much as our government wants us to think that we're like just these little microcrasms that going on that we're the exact same. We all think the same. We all buy the same shit, which I do not. I don't buy all my stuff that like everybody else does. And I don't think anybody else does the same things I do. We all are human. And what I like, the other person might not like. And I think that having more variety is so amazing. And alcoholics are all different. And the fact that now there's so many different ways to do this it's going to save so many more lives. So many families can stay intact. It's stay intact instead of falling apart. There's so many more resources. People are talking about it. They're talking about their feelings. It's making the world so much better, I think. So I love that there are so many people out there doing what they're doing, sharing their messages. Because if somebody doesn't relate to me, they relate to you or they'll relate to somebody else down the way. And it's just amazing. I love that podcasts are so niche, right? So there's podcasts for whatever you like. And as a person obsessed with personal development, I really appreciate that. You know, it's like one day I can be listening to a sobriety podcast. The next day, maybe I'm listening to codependence. The next day, maybe it's entrepreneurship and leadership. The next day, you know what I mean? Like they're just, there's so much that is so enriching for your life in every topic you could imagine. Exactly. And it's when we were growing, at least when I'm older, a little bit older than you. So when, when I was growing, you know, you went to the library and you saw yeah. that there was a variety of books. You could do fiction, nonfiction, whatever you want to do when you walk into Barnes and Noble or whatever. And when it comes to human beings and the way we live today, and it's so busy and we're so running, 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 and you can pick up your phone and you can go to a podcast if you're feeling one certain way, if you're feeling spiritual. I'm really politically, I like a lot of politics, so I go and I find the politics that I like to listen to and see what's going on in that realm. And it's just, it's so amazing that because nobody reads a book like they used Mm -hmm. to, right? So they're going to sit down and they're going to listen to someone's story. And I still love to read books. I like the old fashioned picking up an actual book, not reading it on my tablet, even though I have it as an option, but it has been, um, it's so nice to be able to not feel alone today in this world and to have answers when you're looking for them and going, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about this. How can I make my business better? How can I, uh, I want to learn more about spirituality. I'm a big, I love to learn about all different religions and all different walks of, you know, what people look at in Buddhists and I just studied the Kabbalah, which has been really interesting. It's like, it's amazing. And I can listen to podcasts about that too. Yeah, absolutely. It is a fascinating time to have so much available just at your fingertips, you know, and to your point of just being able to help that many more people, right? It's like the barrier to entry with sobriety is so much lower now. Like you don't have to stress out about going to a meeting and it being all men if that stresses you out. You know, like you can go to an online meeting, you can find a women's meeting. It doesn't need to be 12 steps. There's a hundred others, you know, like there's just so much available. It's so true. I mean, I was just, I, I was... I just had the privilege to be on somebody else's podcast. And I was talking about, you know, when you, or it might've actually been on my own podcast and me talking by myself. I can't even remember at this point. God, my brain. But, um, 
I think it's so funny because when, when I went to my first meeting and when people go to their first meetings, especially in person, and I, I do think that there is a magic in the rooms that you go to For that sure. I can't, yes. and I can't, you can't bottle it yes. up. You can't, I can't describe it except for God. I, it's just God. I think, I mean, there's just a magic. There's just like these endorphins, these feelings that come around the whole room and people all nodding their heads like yeah. you are right now and going, Oh my gosh. But that thought of walking in there is like going to your first day of school <laughs> of like going into ninth grade. You're like, Oh my God, do I have the right outfit on? Oh, Who am I going to see? What are they going to think of me? It's so it's scary. It's so terrifying. It's so scary. Yes. Oh my God. I still remember my first meeting because I, st- it's like for me, I, I'm not a big gym goer. So and like I go to the gym and the, the door at the gym weighs 500 pounds. I'm like, ah, but walking into that first meeting, it was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what is this doing? What am I doing? Who am I going to see? Oh my God. What if my neighbor sees me there? I mean, as time took, you know, as time goes on, you realize like everybody had that same experience you did. Yeah. Everybody has that same fear, that same thought of like, Oh my gosh. Well, I, everybody had that first meeting thought. Everybody is like, we're all here for the same reason. And it's there to bring each other up and say, you can do this one more day. And it's, I think zoom is great to, if you, especially there, cause there's so many people who don't have the accessibility that I had. There was a meeting right down. I mean, I started a meeting like literally at the bottom of my street. So it was amazing, but some people don't have that. So going on zoom, you know, that's what um, Elton John was like the best thing to come out of COVID was, was Zoom because people can go online and have meetings today, but there's nothing like that feeling. Like I miss that, yes. that pre-COVID, you yes. know, feelings that we have. I mean, I haven't gotten back like I did before COVID. I have to be honest. Yeah, same. I, I don't know what happened. Yeah. I don't know. It's like a weird feeling. It's like, it's become like, I hate to say it, a light. It's like when I went, it was like, there was no question. Like the guy, I, I remember raising my hand once and go, I only have six months of recovery, but I think this, and this big old gruffly guy comes up to me, I, can you please come over here? I need to have a conversation with you. And you know, being like, oh my God, what does he want? And him going, don't ever say you only have this amount of time. I was like, wow, wow. I can't imagine a snowflake dealing with that. They probably brought out. Yes. Yes. I mean, it was hardcore, but my disease is hardcore. I have a hardcore disease, right? It's not a joke. Yeah. The hardcore just didn't bother me. I think because I kind of grew up around hardcore. um, There's all guys in my family, right? It's all men, all uncles, whatever. And I just kind of grew up in that hardcore environment anyway. So it didn't really bother me that it was like that. Um, I wasn't particularly freaked out about it being mostly men. Cause it was back then. It was definitely mostly men that didn't freak me out. I did have a creepy guy, like literally probably my first week I had some dumb guy, like sit on my car when I was coming out and walking out in the parking lot. And really, I mean, the biggest mistake he made was sitting on my car because I am a car person, right? I'm a car fanatic. So like I take very good care of my cars. I always have nice cars. I clean them and wash them myself. Like this is my thing. And I come out and this dude is like sitting on my hood. And I was like, okay, pal, like first things first, get the fuck off my car. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm comfortable in that. I'm very comfortable setting boundaries, 
putting people in their lane if I need to, right? Like that doesn't bother me. Unfortunately, that's not the case for a lot of people. A lot of people are much more timid and that can be a very nerve wracking experience, you know, if you're not comfortable telling people. I loved it. Yeah. I loved, I loved that it was like, I saw grown men that you would think, you know, doctors, lawyers, heads of companies, you know, all like sitting, being honest with their yes, feelings. Yes. Like I was like, wow, man, like if he can do this, yes. I can do this. Like this is amazing. And what I think is transpired, another thing that's so funny is that, you know, when we got sober, you could smoke in yes. rooms, you mm-hmm. know, everybody was smoking. It was like, and one of the jobs was the ashtray, yes. right? <laughs> And now today they have like, they're selling weed across the street from the right, A room. Right. You're like, wait a minute, what the hell? Where do we live? It's so crazy. It's so different than what it was. But, you know, learning and seeing these people, these grown men, you know, coming in and going, all right, I just lost my wife or I just lost my child and them being real and crying and having their friends around them. And I mean, they obviously would give them their space to speak during the meeting and then afterwards go over them and embrace them and give them a hug and say, it's going to be okay, bud, we got you. But to see that human that we all are, where else was I going to see that? Right. No, I agree. I had the same experience for sure. Yeah, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I think back and I hate to say it was like, but I don't know if it's like that today. I don't know. I mean, my husband is, goes religiously and he goes to the men's groups. I always thought that the men had this like, God, they don't have the women thing that women still bring into meetings, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever it is, you know, the caddy and the, like the bitchy stuff that they do. It just happens in meetings, unfortunately too. But the guys still have that core where they're, it's like, I love it. Yeah. I see it and it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, last question, favorite question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? Waking up in the morning, knowing what I did yesterday and knowing that today, like the world is so amazing and the gifts that I get to see everywhere I go. That's an awesome question. And I love it. Thank you for that one again. (laughs) Um, you know, I spent so many years, again, I was 37 when I got sober. My kids were older and they weren't older. They were 10, eight and six, but you know, I missed so much spent so much time in my head and worrying about all this shit that didn't even matter. And today it's like, I just get to be present. I get to look outside and see flowers. I mean, I'm lucky I live where I live, but you know, you get to look outside and see beautiful snow and trees that are dormant that you know are going to be beautiful in a couple months are going to be springing Mm -hmm. again. And it's just all this stuff. Like the world is so beautiful. This world is just so amazing. And to be able to take my blinders off and be present in the moments, like I wouldn't give this up for anything. I would not give this up. Like I know life is painful. Life is about change Mm -hmm. all the time. We change constantly and realizing that that's part of life and bring it, embrace it. Life is so good. I love being sober. I love being knowing what's going on. I miss too much. Yeah. I don't want to ever go back. It helps when you have a framework for coping with life, right? Because it is, it's change all the time. It's very uncomfortable. It's painful. 
You know, there's always trials and tribulations and things pushing you to your limit. But when you have a framework that you know you can deal with it, that makes all the difference. And yeah, that's exactly what recovery gives. It's such it's such a an honor, honestly, you know. Oh, I feel like I totally I won the lottery. Yeah. For yeah. sure. For sure. For sure. It might not all be about bing bangs and whistles. As I mentioned, I've gone through a lot of tough stuff, but it's being present and this is my journey. And I did have my pre-reality. I partied my ass off and I can say today, I don't regret any of it. Yes. I had a hell of a good yes. time. I really did. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I can't wait for you to come on my show. I know. That'll be coming up next. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.